0: Happy 2023, everybody! Welcome back to the podcast. If I sound a little jet lag, it's because I am. I am in the great city of Barcelona, the site of which I hope will be many TMBA podcasts in 2023. I hope everyone had a wonderful New Year. You got those resolutions all fresh on your notebook. You got the TMBA pod fired up. You're ready to hear about some business strategies and some legit business models and ideas that can help you get it done in 2023. If you'd like to email me about the future of this show, we've got a lot of interesting episodes we're pulling together in Q1. You can email me, Dan, at tropicalmba.com. Let's kick the year off with a good one. We talk about lifestyle businesses on the show. Specifically, the niche we've been kicking around this year is you know, really what we talk about here are seven-figure lifestyle businesses. That's the idea. Ambitious lifestyle business. They could be ambitious in terms of growth, in terms of profit and revenue, or just in the way you want to run them that's not in the status quo. One of the things we're seeing in folks that are implementing business processes in our community is that a lot of people are ambitious about free time. A lot of people are ambitious about low stress, They're ambitious about their passions, like doing something in a direction that they're interested in that builds other skills, about time with family and friends, specifically parentings and stuff like that. And a lot of times, you know, it's just additional income. And businesses can certainly provide that. And that was the case initially with today's guest.
1: My name is Davis Wynn. I own my consulting offer, which we help people get into management consulting jobs. We help them get the interview, and then we help them pass the interview. And how much you charge them for this? There's two fees. There's a startup fee, which is to make sure that you have skin in the game. So people who are recent grads or students love this because they're only paying less than 30% up front, and then the other 70%, depending on the program they're in, they only pay after they get the offer. So by the time they get their $25,000 signing bonus, paying our success fee is like not even half of that amount. So you're charging between five and 10 grand for the service. That's correct. On average, there are some packages that are more depending on how much handholding we'll do and how much support we'll do. But yeah, exactly.
0: So we're going to get into the circumstances in which Davis, an incredibly generous member, I must say, of the DC and a recent speaker at DCBKK created My Consulting Offer in a while. But first, I wanted to hear a little bit about that business and why Davis's background at Bain Management Consulting sowed the seeds for creating the My Consulting Offer Side Hustle while he was working at an online course creator called Jump Cut.
1: Davis, can you like give me a visual of what your business looks like? Sure. I always think about it in... Uh three three lanes. There's how do people find out of us, which so is the marketing, the lead gen. Do people join our program enroll the sales part of it? And then there's the fulfillment of it. So for example, when someone goes and joins our program, they might have heard about us. Let's say that we do an event with UT Austin. So a student might come in, they might say, Hey, wow, we really enjoyed the presentation that Davis's team did. I want to find out a little bit more. And so then they'll talk with one of our specialists. And our specialists are former consultants or recruiters from these big McKinsey, Bain, BCG. So no hard sales or anything. They'll just answer questions about our program. It's the right fit. For some people, it's not a good fit. Well, it's like, wow, you have a 4.0. You have a double major. Your dad works in consulting. He's a partner at McKinsey. You don't need us. But if they do join us, then it's the fulfillment side of it, which is we have people who are former HR, former recruiters who will work with you on your resume, on your cover letter. Pretty much they know the insides of it. And we'll tell you exactly how you're going to be rejected, why you should fix your resume or your cover letter a certain way, get you these interviews, and then you'll get paired off with a former interviewer who will work with you one-on-one to make sure you can pass the interviews. And this, the whole business just started with me back in... This is late 2018, call it. And it was just me in my, in my living room trying to pay off a debt. So over time, we scaled it over seven figures. And of course, we're a service business, so you can figure out the profits will go up as the revenue goes up as well. We've placed over 600 people at this point into management consulting jobs. And I'm amazed that about a third... About So we have over 200 videos on our website of people literally saying, Hey, I'm willing to show my face, use my name, whatever to say, Hey, I use their services. fantastic. And my goal for our team is how do we change lives like this? For example, there's some of my favorite stories. We have a bartender who is basically making less than minimum wage, getting on the tips. And now he's working a six-figure job in consulting. There's a photographer who was doing wedding photography, transformed her life. There's a flight attendant. There's a high school football coach who got into consulting last year. Obviously, we work with other people too. We work with lawyers, we work with dentists, we work with doctors, surgeons at one point to get into consulting as well. But to me, like the best metric you ask me, it's not quite the revenue even though I'm proud of where we are, the profits. But it's just really, how many lives did we change over the course of this year, last year, since the company started? And that's what really energizes me, especially on those hard days when I think, "Ah, things aren't going well. I just literally go on to our... What's the hard parts of this business? It sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of hard parts. Because we're so dependent on consulting firms hiring, it really does get tied into the economy. So for example, back in 2020, I thought that was going to be our best year. It ended up being our best year at that point. But in the beginning, during especially during March to May, when things were going on lockdown, a couple of things happened. One of our main sources of lead generation that we used to be me flying in when it was just me and a smaller team. I would fly into like UT Austin, I would fly into Berkeley, Uni- I would fly into Georgia Tech and so forth, all these universities, Harvard, and I would give these talks to students. And the problem was when the school shut down, immediately the schools are not thinking about, oh, let's fly these in. How do you convince... Okay, what's the pitch look like? The universities weren't always so welcoming to me. I would say by play, the hit rate has gotten better over time. In the beginning, I would probably say probably like 10%. Like I would for every 10 emails, maybe I got one. And in some emails, even to this day, get dropped. Like, oh, they get busy or just never gets responded respond. And you'll follow up five times and I get a response. But the pitch was, hi, I used to work at a baiting company. I noticed that a lot of your students are interested in management consulting. I would love to go in and do a free workshop on what, as an interviewer, I looked for when I was interviewing. And as someone reading a resume, how I decided which students got interviews or not. And then that was just me in the beginning back in 2019, 2018, when I was getting this started. And later on, as I added more team members, there's a lot more credibility. So it's not just, oh, Davis, who spent a few years in consulting. Now I have a team. Some of them spent 20 years in recruiting and have a lot more credibility than I do. And they're doing the presentations and so forth. So it makes it a little easier. Our, I would say our success rate wasn't because of any code email outreach. I literally just said it like that. But it was three things. It's like one, the feedback. If they've done an event with us, they're more likely that then pretty much everyone who did an event with us will do another event. The only time we find a hiccup on that is if the Career Center changes directors and then it starts the whole process. Like, but at least now we have the recordings, we have the feedback, we have the testimonials that we could send through. You can remind the new director. Exactly. We can remind the new director to come in. And for universities that didn't want to work with us, let's say the year prior, if we get enough credibility, then we will get a referral from one of the other universities. Like For example, if Stanford didn't want to work with us one year, but we happen to do one at Berkeley, we happen to do one at Harvard, and we're like, oh, the Harvard Center said this about us, Berkeley said this about us. And then Stanford goes, well, if you're working with Berkeley and Harvard, you're definitely going to give a shot here. It was a momentum that built over time. So it wasn't like day one, I figure this out. In fact, in day one, I thought it was like the worst channel because I'll tell you, one time I was going to do an event. It was the first event that we got to do with Harvard. And so I would fly myself up. And during that time, there was a hurricane that was flying through nearby. So it redirected my flight. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late for this. And so by myself, I bought another ticket. So I couldn't fly into Boston because of this hurricane. So I had to fly into Providence. So I literally flew into Providence, last minute ticket. So it was like three times as expensive. I get there, and then the trains aren't running from Providence to Boston because of the hurricane. So I have to get an Uber to go through. So I get the Uber to go from Providence to Harvard, and this is when I was bootstrapping the business back, which is me. So I was like, "This is hundreds of dollars." And the the guy <laughs> puts in Google Maps the wrong address instead of putting Harvard University, he puts Harvard Massachusetts, which is an hour away from Cambridge. And so <laughs> I went in the middle of like nowhere, and I have to go back. And so the event starting, I go in there, I'm drenched in my, like, semi-casual. And I go in and people are like, so this guy's a professional. He's coming in here. And and so he's drenched, I do the presentation, everything goes well. It becomes a great lease and source. But it wasn't always that way. So sometimes that is that chaotic. I didn't have a VA at the time or anything. It was just me organizing this back in late 2018. And then the next day, because I was already in Cambridge, MIT is across the bridge. So I decided to go to MIT and there's literally six people there. And there are six people, most of them are underclassmen. So they're not going to be thinking about career for another two or three years. And I thought to myself, wow, imagine I have to do this for her. So sometimes we go to universities and there's a room of 80 people that they do a really great job. And other times I literally get six people. That was the first year when we did First two years, I think sometimes I would actually film these events because I wanted to have proof to the university that, hey, we're doing a great job. I know you couldn't send your career director here. And if we use it to market to other universities, I would have a film. And sometimes the film crew would basically say, hey, Davis, there's more film crew than are our students. We're going to do a close-up shot for you so they don't see the, all these empty chairs. And that was basically <laughs> what the first two years was like with these universities. And I thought, wow, why are we doing this channel? But things really picked up. And you asked me, what can boom the business? Besides universities closing is if the economy goes into a tailspin, for example, do consulting firms hire. And during 2020, around March to May, this would pick up, of course, in hindsight. But during those months, people just yeah. stopped doing interviews. They stopped having post-job posting because people didn't know what was going on. Like, people were afraid that they were going to be laid off in their own jobs. And so not only did we lose our marketing channel at the time, where we were also worried that consulting firms were not going to hire, but that forced us to really innovate our model and so that was like, hey, one of the things I did not like was showing up and flying across the country all the time. I was like, what if we did this virtually? I know it's like, guys, is 2020. There are things called webinars. Why am I not doing a webinar? Why don't we just do that?
0: Why weren't you doing a webinar?
1: I would say that universities are a little slower to adopt new trends, even though this wasn't a new trend. And, yeah. and so they finally said, yeah, we'd love to give this a try. And, but they said, hey, we don't know how to set up this tech. I'm like, what if we set it up for you? We will set up the Zoom. We will do the registration page. We'll do everything. All you have to do is the one thing we can't do, which is email out to your students. And so that was our best year in terms of... We would get rooms where we get up to 200 people. In fact, I didn't even know Zoom had a limit until one of the events we had more than... I was like, oh, guys, we got to upgrade. So that's why we pivot. And then to this day, we now do online events.
0: It's interesting. What's fascinating, Davis, is like for how travel happy our community is, I can maybe remember, but it's been a long time since I've had somebody on this show who was flying around specifically on the reg
1: to grow the business. Exactly. I think I was willing to do anything that first two years to just get the business started. In the beginning, I would literally tell every university, yeah, I happen to be there anyway for a conference, for a wedding. But actually not even half of that. Majority of the time. Nope. I literally just, as soon as they confirmed, I booked my ticket. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm here.
0: I want to do flag up the I happen to be there anyway trick is absolutely massive. Davis, I love the idea of doing whatever it takes in the first year. Why was this an opportunity in 2017, 2018 timeframe? Why wasn't there just a bunch of other management consulting training opportunities
1: already flooded across the country? There were some, but... I realized that they also wanted to build just a very passive online course or a marketplace where you can just pick similar to an Airbnb, but you pick your interviewer. And I thought to myself, well, there's a big enough market for everyone. So it started with me because... Well, at the time, uh, there was a call I had with my mom. And my mom basically just said, Hey, Davis, I need like $22,000 for a medical bill. And I didn't have time to do proper market research or anything like that. It was just like, one day, I'm just working my job at a startup, which wasn't paying much at the time. This is a jump cut. This is that jump cut, which I love that company. As in, they're fantastic. And the way that my deal was structured at the time, obviously, if they did well, I did well. But this was like during the beginning of it when we were still figuring out the profitability for jump cut. At the time, now I have skills, but I underestimated my own abilities as an entrepreneur back then. I was like, well, I just worked in management consulting. So I know how to get in. Job there. I know how to get an interview. I know how to pass the interview. So let's do that. And then I just started going through and I started just going on Reddit and I read some of the posts and I was active on Reddit already because even when I was at Bain, I would just message certain questions, didn't give any confidential information or anything, but I would just give advice. And so I went back on the forum and just started answering more questions. And that's how the traction came. I was like, oh, I think I can get enough. I didn't charge the same model I charge now. It was like 10 grand. Back then it was like one grand, two grand. But even at two grand, I just needed. To work with 11 students to be able to pay that off. And so that's what ended up happening was my goal was well, let's just do 11 and then shut it off. And then we go back to Jump Cut. We focus on the thing we were supposed to do, and this distraction goes away. But I just really enjoyed it. So I started getting referrals in. I thought, huh, besides Reddit, what else can I do? Well, Jump Cut's in LA. Maybe I do a school event in UCLA. And then UCLA got me thinking, well, I'm going to visit my friends in San Francisco later. What don't I do one in Stanford and Berkeley? Stanford rejected me the first year. Berkeley said yes. And so that's where I picked up where I just enjoyed it.
0: Why aren't you a management consultant now?
1: I love the management consulting job. Like I love the fact that you can learn. You get to work with really smart people. I think for me personally, there was a few things, which is one, and there's a time and place for everything where you can learn. I just didn't like the fact that I couldn't take time off as much as I wanted. So you start off, your standard two weeks becomes three weeks and so forth. But for example, I remember my first year, I literally went to negative vacation days because I wanted to take a trip to Japan with my then girlfriend. And so we went to Japan. And by the time I came back, basically HR said, all right, Davis, you have negative five days now. Basically, you can't take vacation for the next <laughs> year. So you got to
0: work the next five Christmases?
1: Basically for the next year, anytime I took a vacation, I could only be near a Bain & Company office. And so they would have to call me in. And that wasn't a good way to live, right? Where you're constantly... I'm at lunch and I would just check my emails just to make sure, hey... Have a rule if they email me, I have to be within the office within two hours. So I couldn't get with outside of two hours, right. and that was just very constrained. And so that was one. And I looked at the partners, and they were smart. They're making great money. They're doing all this, but I also did not like the fact that oh, their clients in the Philippines, but they're based in San Francisco. All right, they're on a the plane to the Philippines, and he's like, "Yeah, Davis, I'm going to miss my my kid's first day of school, but he'll understand when he's older." Do I want that for my kids personally? When when I'm a partner, probably not. And so that's when I made the decision where. I want to work with consultants. I want to work on smart problems. I want to make an impact. But at the same time, I don't want to be in my 40s or in my 30s. And I love to travel, but I don't want to be able to force to travel. Or one time I remember there was a client who blew up at one of our teams and then the partner literally next day canceled everything and just flew out to the client's site that was in a different state. And I thought, wow, is that going to be me in like 15 years? That does not seem fun. The good old
0: corner office test. I'm curious, when you were giving your talk in Bangkok, you, know, you have a lot of cool mental models that you share and stuff. How much of that is from your consulting background? Like, how much does it help?
1: My friends joke with me like, Davis, I think you're already thinking about frameworks. You didn't have a term for it when <laughs> we were in college. I think because of who you are, you were going to be a management consultant, not a management became who you are. So I'll tell you a story, which is when I was dating back in, in college... I basically had this decision tree about should I pursue a second date? It was like literally layers of writing through and I would share this with my friends. So it was I, like getting things done, except it was should I marry this woman, basically. Exactly. And then <laughs> I had this Excel where I would try to do this regression of... Okay, so and I would try to fill it. Like it's like, oh, this person here, I really enjoyed dating her. But then this quality was made it. So I put a negative number. So I would have like this expensive Excel sheet so by the time I went to consulting, it was just like natural to me to start thinking about how to simplify a problem by breaking it down to its parts. But I will say, Bain added one part, management consulting, which is the business concept of it, which is instead of just thinking about dating, like, well, can we think about this about merging businesses? Can we think about this about hiring a CEO? Can we think about this in terms of reorganizing the, the org chart and so forth? So Bain did taught did teach me how to apply all these thinking into real business problems and that's where I learned a lot of it and so I wouldn't be where I am without Bain but I would say that some of the things I really enjoyed like just thinking about how to break problems down was already innate to me like just being a problem solver I just didn't have the structured learning environment to build that out
0: I know what it feels like to show up to a job board and understand that whatever price you're gonna pay and whatever amount of time you're gonna spend writing that job ad, that's just a fraction of the whole deal. Hiring takes a ton of time and money, especially if you get it wrong. That's why in 2023, we've created a more affordable way for you to work directly with our experienced recruiters to help you get the result and the hire you're seeking. Check out our new service. It's called Guided Hire and it starts at just $14.97. With Guided Hire, an experienced team member on our team will help you determine a hiring strategy and promote to the best candidates, even if they're not on our own job board. Dynamite jobs. will help you track them down and hand deliver and filter for you only the very best applications. Our recruiters are executing this best-in-class strategy all day, every day with great results. In fact, last year, we made over 100 direct hires. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Let me just read some of these. Our recent hire, senior designer in Colorado, a full stack engineer in Kosovo, technical support in Hungary, technical project manager in Dominican Republic, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of locations, all kinds of salaries. Check out our team at remotefirstrecruiting.com. We can help run the strategy for you and guide you to the result you seek. So save time, get expert support, and execute a world-class hiring strategy for every single hire. Head on over to remotefirstrecruiting.com. .com and give the team a call. You become famous for me for your hiring framework and I'm wondering if you can share some elements of that and why you see that as an important function in the company just to talk me through how you think about hiring.
1: I think of people as an investment and not a cost because a lot of people think of people as a cost like oh I have to hire this person to take care of this I have to budget I'm like no Because they're either freeing up your time or solving a problem that you can't solve on your own. And in theory, that should be saving you money or creating money for you. And so that's like the first step is to decide. But I always think about hiring as an investment. So when people ask me, hey, Davis, what's your budget for this role? I'm like, depends. Well, they're like, Davis, I'm thinking about hiring this person for two grand a month. And I'm like, great. So if this person could bring you four grand a month, you hire them for two grand, you just made $2,000. But imagine if someone could bring you 10 grand. Yeah, I'll pay them five grand. Yeah, basically just to make them that much. And of course you can scale that up. Like I'm willing to pay someone ten thousand dollars a month. That's a bad sign if your lever is like was only
0: a hundred percent on hiring. Exactly. Just not to say you shouldn't, but like if someone's only gonna make you four grand and you're paying two grand, you're probably not gonna be a good investment for you.
1: <laughs> exactly. And that's how I, I think about it is that when people come to me and they think about well, what's the budget, I'm like, well, what's the upside that they can bring into you? First step is, do we need to make this higher? And the first thing I always have my team do and myself is we like to do a time audit because sometimes you're just stressed about some kind of task and kind of work. So I was talking to another DCer last week and he was just basically stressed about everything about business. He's like, all right, I need to have a general manager. I was like, okay, well, what would the general manager do? And then we literally went through and we listed out all the tasks. And I was like, well, do you enjoy doing this? How much money would you do? What would you do if you weren't doing this? And he was like, well, I would probably be focused on sales. All right, great. How much money does that bring? And we did all these calculations. In the end, we were like, Okay, so person, it sounds like to me that what you don't like is you don't like handling account management. And all these things, he's like, Yeah, I don't need a general manager. It sounds like I just need an account manager. So the first part is deciding that you want to hire. And so my thing about that is, again, the leverage that the hire could make. Because I told the same person, if you're going to hire and you're just going to literally take this to play badminton... It's going to cost you this much money. But if you're really converting all the time to doing higher leverage items, then you can kind of see what's happening here and you can create cash flow. And when he saw the number, he was like, wow, I need to hire this person soon. I was like, well, we'll get to that. So the first decision is making sure that you want to hire the person. So that's step one. Step two for me is what do you want out of this person? So I always have every single person on my team and even the people who ask me for advice is, what's the scorecard looks like? So for some people, they notice as top grading for me, our system's a little simpler, which is, what is a non-negotiable for you? Like, what does this person have to have? For example, if you're hiring a account manager, what do they need? Do they need attention to detail? Or do they need to be able to have clear communication? And what's a nice to have? For example, is a nice to have, oh, they live in my time zone. I tell every single person on my team, this is the most important thing you do in this process because you're going to be doing your regular job and you're going to be interviewing and you're going to want to cut corners and just... Some of these non-negotiables, you're gonna to want to say, no, this person is 80% there. Let's just do it. And you're gonna to have to end up realizing that this person is not gonna perform. And so what's saying that someone told me once is you either hire nice or you hire twice. And which has been from my experience prior to having this framework is well, guys, yeah, we're gonna hire nice because so we don't have to hire twice. And when you take that scorecard, I like to build out the hiring process, which is stage number three, which is how are you gonna test all this? Because for example, if you test attention to detail and there's no process in your interview process where you're paying attention to their typos, their grammar, how they communicate, then you didn't really solve for the scorecard. And so I always think about, you morph everything around the scorecard. And traditionally for us, the hiring process is in three phases, and it could be more or less, but we have some sort of filter process where they'll go through an application, they'll upload a video of themselves reporting something, answering a question. But this first filtration process is really about just capturing some of the key traits. Like for example, if they have typos, did they answer the question? They basically do the basic stuff. And after that, the second part that comes to it is they'll have a fit interview. Usually they'll have a fit interview with the hiring manager. And in the beginning, it was just with me. And so for this process, I'll go back to my scorecard and think about what do I want to test? Like, for example, if I want to test if they have good communication skills on the interview, I'll go through and just say, what's the problem that you had to solve recently? Tell me why did you solve this? Did you think about solving it a different way? And if another quality I want to know is, are they willing to challenge me on my ideas? Then I'll say, wait, I think that's a bad idea, Dan. Why didn't you do this? And then see how they respond. They're like, you know what, was a bad idea. You're like, no, that's not a bad idea because of this, David. I want to see, right? Everything <laughs> relates back to the scorecard. And then after the fit interview, either with me or the hiring manager, depending on who's the person at the time. The third stage is I need to see... And I got this from Google's method of hiring. So Google, I think, has one of the best hiring process because... They test you on your skills, but obviously, we're not hiring engineers all the time. But I give my team or the candidate a mock project to do, which is, Hey, we'll pay you for this, depending on how long it takes. Is Why don't you do a project for us and see how you do? For example, if the person is going to be hired to run our partnerships, then I would go through and figure out, Well, based on what you know about our business, who are the top 10 partners that you would want to reach? out of our existing partners, which ones would you not continue with given this data set? And we kind of see how they, they work because it's kind of like we're paying them for their time to consult on this short-term project. But if it's bad, we didn't commit to hiring them and they have to undo the whole process. And so to me, it, again, maps back to the scorecard, which is in the scorecard, if you wanted to test their problem solving skills, their ability to work with numbers is all on the test project. And assuming that someone goes through the screener, the fit interview, and then the mock project, the fourth optional one, depending on if we have enough data points or not at this time, and it's becoming more standard for us is we'll get on a final call, which is usually with me. My theory is that no matter what role you're in at the company, if you're being hired at a customer support role, or you're going to be coming in as like a chief of staff, you're going to be interviewed by me. So Jeff Hazel had a quote where he said that he... He was in, involved in the interview for the first 1,000 Amazon employees. I'm like, well, Jeff Bezos can do this for a 1,000 people. I could definitely do this for number 20. So I would just get on the call. And what I would do is I would take their, their test project and I would just have a working session. Like if you and I were just working together through the problem together. And I see, do they hit that scorecard? Do they have tough conversations? Are they open to feedback? And you can learn a lot about a person, I find, through the working session.
0: What's an example of like the work that you would actually do on one of these calls?
1: Let's use the example I, I just shared, which was, let's say that we're trying to hire a partnership manager. And let's say that they came up with a list of these 10 companies. I would go in the call and I'd say, like, great, so you came up with these 10s. Walk me through. How did you come up with these? If you're using that framework for deciding it, why don't we just include paid memberships into this Soup? Why does it only have to be free? Why can't we pay like $200, get access to this membership? Why don't we fly out to this conference? And I just generate ideas as if I was the CEO challenging them on it. And we just have this back and forth session where at the end result, their project should be in a better state than when they entered it. So it's almost like a real working session where a team member comes to you and says, Hey, this is my first draft of this. Let's work through it together. And sometimes the answer is, let me get back to you on that. And that's completely okay. Because if people want to think about it, I let them have through and then I wait for them. Do they get back to me the next day? Or did they get back to me three weeks from now? And so there's always ways to be, to be able to test that. And that's pretty much the process. And then while this is all happening, we also do references, reference checks as well. But one of the main questions I ask is, if you have to rate this person between zero to 10, or if you have to rate this person compared to every single other person that you've worked within this similar role, would you rate them top 1%, top 5%, top 10%, top 25, and so forth? And what I want to look for are people who are within ideally the top 5%. But it's kind of like, well, if we only have... We're a small team, we can afford it. Let's just hire only the top talent. Because if you weren't a top talent on this other person's team, I probably want to hire who they think is the top talent.
0: A lot of this stuff is really about taking like away the performative element or the charismatic element of an interview. And trying to get a sense for like what their actual behavior is in situations that mat like have business relevance, essentially. Yep, right? that's correct. And so, a scorecard is like if you don't have a scorecard as a founder, I mean, I'm guilty of this in the past. Like, you show up. The scorecard is just basically having clarity around what a role is and why it exists and what the key results you require would be. Which is why I've heard one of the if you're a candidate, a great question to ask when someone asks you. I think I saw this one a YouTube short recently. So no shout out. But the coach was basically like, you should ask the recruiter, what would things need to look like in a year if this was like a great hire for you? Like this would turn out to be a wonderful fit between the two of us. Like what outcomes would need to happen for you to say that? He's basically saying like, clarify for me your scorecard. (laughs) Because I've showed up to interviews before where it's just like, yeah, I'm looking for somebody. And you just kind of show up like we're... Let's go down to the cafe, man. Like, is it, was it cool? Oh, they do something kind of similar. Oh, I didn't think about that. Maybe if we brought that in, it's like, nah, man, like, and it kind of comes back to, like, I think earlier in my career, Davis, I was fast and loose with hiring, you know, and now I'm kind of the opposite. Like, let's not hire until we're squealing mm-hmm. and we find someone that's really amazing.
1: Exactly. That's a, the same philosophy we have here as well. As that's why I think the scorecard is so important is that, when my team is being squeezed and it's very clear that we need this person on or we would like to have this need is thrown word, but like we would like to have this person on the team. I remind them, you're going to be doing this work, especially for first-time hires, first-time managers. I'm like, but you're also going to be interviewing candidates. You're going to want to cut corners because you want the easy out. You want the easy solution, but it's going to cost you so much more. It just gives everyone a common language because the last thing you ever want to do is... And even in previous companies i worked for, interned at and so forth, it was the same issue, which is that when you hire someone, but they don't know what success looks like, you're setting both sides up for failure. Totally.
0: I used to be very fatalistic, like, oh, this person doesn't get it. have this kind of like intuitive, stick your thumb in the soup kind of vibe. You know, like they don't taste the same thing. And it's like, well, yeah, but you never wrote it down. A <laughs> couple quick questions here at the end, Dave. What's your stock advice when you're listening to young people who say they want to start a business, they want to quit their jobs? And they want to do what you're doing. They want to live on the other side of the world for a couple of years or months. <laughs> what's your stock advice for
1: them? The two things I tell people too is, first off, have a why. Figure out what you're trying to solve for and what's the easiest way to solve for it. Because for me, I had a $22,000 debt. And then it was only after that when I realized there's, oh, I, now that I solved it and have a business, I can actually live anywhere I want, when I want. And so that's my stop. And so that's number one. And two is before you go all in, I know some people will quit their job and go all in. I'm personally the opposite, which is what's the minimum risk I can take, and so I just recommend people just do it on the weekend, or just do it on the next person who walks through and see if there's actually validation for it. Because you don't want to quit everything, buy a one-way ticket, and realize you don't have a plan, and then you're not willing to, let's say, teach English or whatnot. Then just try it on the weekends, and you'd be amazed. Like even if it takes you a month or two to get this side business started, you'll realize one of three things: either one, if you hate what you're doing on the side, you're gonna hate doing this full time. Like you, you you're just not. Second is if you just hate business in general, well... It's your trial. Exactly. Yeah. It's your trial period. And then third is like, do you actually have a problem that people are willing to pay for? Because, well, if no one's paying for this, you don't have income coming in. And so I always like to have that, that trial period. And that's the two advice I give to people. It's just know why you're doing what you're doing. And second is just give it a try.
0: Big shout out to Davis Wynn for stopping by the show. You can check out what he's up to at myconsultingoffer.org. We've had some great emails from you guys about what you'd like to hear more in 2023. Keep them coming. Questions, comments, feedback of all kinds. We've got a bunch of amazing episodes lined up this year. We appreciate your thoughts. My email is dan at tropicalmba.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time as usual.